Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science, half an hour on your radio where we talk about all things scientific. My name is Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be talking to Dr. Sarah Piper from the University of Queensland about some research she's involved in which looks at how bacteria target specific host organisms uh, in order to feed off them basically uh, and the work that she's done in figuring out exactly how bacteria do target these organisms and how that could potentially be used in uh, medicine and uh, agricultural crop protection. Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, I uh, I was eating a really tasty treat yesterday and it got me thinking... What was it? Uh, it was... A Dagwood dog. No, you know my... <laughs> a Dagwood dog! You know how much I love... Actually, you know what it was? It was a roast. It was a Sunday roast the other day. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and it got me thinking about taste and our taste buds, but also do animals taste in the same way that we do. So I've done a bit of an exploration about that and um, I'm going to report back to you. An investigation into tongues. Into <laughs> tongues of birds, of fish, of cats and, of course, of us. Fantastic. And Chris? Well, um, there are a lot of environmental catastrophes going on in the world at the moment. <laughs> so which one am I going to look at today? Let me see. Let's spin the wheel. Spin the wheel. I think... I think it's plastic's turn. Yes, I'm going to have a little look at plastic, particularly plastic pollution in the ocean, how bad it is, where it's coming from, and is there anything that we can do about it? And where it's going and ending where up. Where it's going and ending up yeah, as well, yeah. Well, can't wait to hear more about that. Stay tuned. One of the ongoing problems that people face is feeding all of the people in the world. And one of the problems with doing that is that lots of other creatures want to eat our crop plants. But obviously, insects being animals have their own health problems, and one of those is bacteria. So on the line with me, I have Sarah Piper from the University of Queensland, who is working on the bacteria that attack certain insects with a view to using some of those bacteria to um, help us uh, avoid uh, insect pests on our crops, among other things. Sarah, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what is your background in, uh, in research and, and how did you come at the idea of bacterial pathogens of insects as a, as a field of research? Yes, so um, actually I'm um, a structural biologist, um, so I'm looking at um, the structures of proteins and looking at proteins can tell us um, how they actually function. And we are working uh, in close collaboration with labs all over the world, in particular with a lab in New Zealand. And they actually uh, discovered this bacterium that's active against um, uh, a range of um, insect crop pests, for example, um, the diamondback moth, which is actually a moth that's uh, causing very detrimental losses um, in um, 
crops such as canola. And so, um, yeah, the labs in New Zealand um, contacted us and said, yeah, we have a good idea that this bacterium is um, responsible for um, killing those those insects and um, we want to find out yeah, how they actually do that um, on a molecular level. So specifically yeah. this bacteria preferentially targets these diamondback moths? Yes, um, so it is active against um, different insects, okay. but um, I think very importantly um, for um, ecological, agricultural um, reasons is the diamondback moth, and it's actually highly um, effective against this diamondback moth. So how did you go about finding out what, how the bacteria affects the moth? Did you, what, did you, what did you do next? Yeah, so actually we, um, yeah, we collaborated with this, uh, about this with um, the labs in New Zealand. So they actually found out that there's a specific protein that this bacterium produces that is actually um, responsible for causing the cell death in insects. And um, we didn't really know um, what what this protein is doing, how it's acting in the insect cells, and how it even looked like. Our team here at University of Queensland, we looked at this protein um, using a technique called cryoelectron microscopy. This technique um, uses a very, very powerful microscope so that we can look at the protein itself. And um, we solved the structure of this protein and we found out that how, how it looks like and with what kind of features it's decorated. And um, so, for example, what we found out is that this protein that's produced by this bacterium, that this protein is decorated by um, features that can chew up layers in the insect cells. And actually, um, this helps with the pathogenicity of this bacterium. And it can also inject a toxin into the insect cell specifically, which then causes the cell death. So a protein is a 3D structure. So this is like a little yeah. tiny uh, machine, I guess, that, um, exactly. that, that yeah. breaks into the, the insect cells and then injects a toxin into the cell that kills the cell. Exactly like that, yes. So this protein has different features. One, one feature is kind of how... Like we wanted to find out how it actually recognizes particular cells, for example, this, these insect cells, and not, uh, and at the same time not being harmful, for example, for human cells. And then um, it also can then, once it has targeted um, those specific insect cells, it can then uh, specifically inject a toxin into the cells and then causing the cells to die, like a little nano machine. So, so is it possible, do you think, that we could develop these bacterial proteins to target other specific cell types? Yes, absolutely. So we think that these proteins, that they have a large potential to be developed into um, generic nanomachines that target specific cells. So we can uh, re-engineer those, those features on the surface of the protein to then say, um, instead of targeting specific insect cells, we can manipulate those features so that it targets, for example, specific cancer cells 
it can recognize those cells and then deliver this toxin to the cells and then ultimately kill those cells. So it has large potential not only in agriculture but also in biomedical research, for example. Uh, yeah, so even directly into into human health, not just feeding us, but actually getting rid of disease in human bodies. Yes, exactly. That's that's really amazing. So the the other thing I was just going to ask quickly was that um, obviously it this bacteria targets the diamondback moth, but with other uh, insect pests, it can be programmed to target specific insect pests and not harm other insects. I guess. Yes, exactly. So um, by looking at the structure and identifying the features that are responsible that interact with specific cells, we can then tell, um, okay, so these features target the specific, for example, diamondback moth cells or insect gut cells. But then if we exchange those, um, those features with other features that we know target other cells, yeah, we can then re-engineer it to, um, yeah, specifically target, um, yeah, different insect cells, for example, as well. That all sounds pretty amazing. I, I, I sort of can't wait to uh, to see the next generation of medical and agricultural uh, solutions that this research leads to. Um, yes. Thank you for joining us on Lost in Science, uh, Dr. Sarah Piper from the Institute for <laughs> Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland. Thanks yes. for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, there's nothing quite like that first salt and vinegar chip out of the bag, right? Nah, I love them. Really? They're not my favourite. I just like plain salt. I'm a very simple man. You are a simple man with simple pleasures. Um, or what? Well, what about the delicious marriage of sweet and bitterness that comes from a piece of dark chocolate? No, no, I do like dark chocolate. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Look, in my regular day-to-day habit of eating delicious things, I have been thinking about how we actually taste and about, you know, because I'm so selfless how other animals, if they taste in the same way we do. So let's taste. Let's start with uh, our own taste, our taste buds. We um, So taste buds are actually around 50 to 100 cells that are lined up around each other like um, segments of an orange, if you can imagine. Now on this cluster of cells, you have between 10 and 50 little hair-like protrusions that stick up and they're the receptors for our taste. So our sweet, sour, bitter, salty and umami. Now they are around for a good time, not a long time, so are renewed every 10 days. So, right, so when you when you burn your mouth on hot pizza, they basically all die and you can't taste anything for 10 days. Is 10 days you're later, you're okay. good, mate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they don't all renew at the same time. No, they're probably... There isn't like once every yeah. 10 days where you can't taste like, anything. Like yeah, the, the, the top of your tongue comes off and it has to be replaced. Oh, goodness. Anyway, so some of these receptor cells are on our taste buds, specifically the ones for sweet, bitter, sour and umami, they contain proteins on their surface that bind to some of the chemicals from our food, while salty receptors have ion channels that are activated by different chemicals. So once a receptor has detected a particular chemical, say it's acidic, or um, uh, then it 
then this information is conveyed along a series of neural pathways to the brain where the taste is perceived. Now, do you guys think you can taste better than other people? Mm, probably not. No, taste you taste worse. You're well, worse at tasting. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm just not at, not not a, not a super taster. Way. Well, there are super tasters. Um, the average the average adult has between two thousand and eight thousand taste buds. So some people have fewer larger taste buds as well, um, while others have many more smaller taste buds. And what does that mean? Like uh, if if they've got more taste buds. Well, if they've got more taste buds, then they can they're super tasters. Like so they're more sensitive to yeah. like if they have a, a something that's a little bit sweet, it will taste sweeter to them. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Um and we don't just have taste buds on our tongue, we also have them on the roof of our mouth. We have them down our throat and even in our gut. Um though they act as you can imagine, they act a bit differently um than those taste buds on our tongue. Um, now, one more mind-blowing fact. Despite what we learned in school, it's not actually true that there are certain areas of the tongue that are responsible for particular taste sensations. Um, each taste bud has receptors of each type of taste. So on each taste bud, you've got your sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami. So that map that is in every child's How Your Body Works book yeah. is completely wrong. It's wrong. Ugh. It's wrong. Every taste bud has the receptors for every type of taste. Um, all right. Now, um, do you think animals can taste like we do? Yes, no, some. Do, some do they them? taste like we do or yeah. do they taste in the same way as we taste? Do they taste? <laughs> they taste like shit. <laughs> I think, well, it surely, would, surely, surely it would. Both ways if you want. It would you? depend on their diet, I would imagine, because the reason we taste things certain ways is because those foods are Nutritious. Totally. Sweet foods have lots of energy and, and umami foods have lots of protein, protein usually. Yeah. And, yeah. and other, we but need other ones salt. Are like, other ones are like warning ones, aren't they? Like, well, you know, absolutely. Yeah. If something's bitter, don't eat more of that bitter thing because yeah, it's probably yeah. not healthy for you. But but so, yeah, wouldn't it? It would depend what the animal eats, I would think. Yes, indeed, it does. Um, so, but in general, animals, um, they taste the same things as, as us, um, and the molecular mechanisms that they use to do it are the same also. So, um, so what is sweet to us is also tastes sweet to a mouse, which makes sense with your theory there, Stu. Good one. It, but it, how it do does we, make sense. How do we know a mouse's feeling of sweet is the same as our feeling of sweet? Well, we just look at the molecular biology. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. the channels. That, yeah. The, and know. then also look at whether the mouse would go to something sweet compared to something not sweet. Right. Okay. Yeah. I guess um, the other thing, though, too, is that it's not just the the taste buds measuring it, but it's how they perceive it in their brain that probably makes a difference, too. So they might go, oh, that's sweet, but, you know, I mean... Grass probably doesn't taste that great, but to a cow, it's pretty good. So for some reason, they think that it tastes better than what we would think it tastes, I assume. <laughs> Maybe they'd prefer to eat other things. Maybe they know. would. Maybe they would prefer to eat other things. Yes, yeah, That's indeed. what they've got. Yeah, that's what they've got. <laughs> um, okay, so but it isn't, it isn't all like uh, sweet eating or mice that like sweet things. There are some exceptions, uh, most notably being cats, mm -hmm. um, which I don't know if you knew or not, can't taste sweet. 
I, I kind of guess that because, I mean, they do drink milk <laughs> and stuff like that. But if you sort of, mm. they don't go for like trays of cake or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's If you true. leave it out, whereas yeah. they'll go for a bit of meat or something like that. Dogs, but on the other hand, love that. Dogs will just eat anything. They yeah. eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> they eat curry, like curry flavouring. They eat things they've eaten okay. before. So <gasps> m- mice can taste sweet. And cats can't, but cats can taste mice, cats presumably. Cats love mice. Okay, <laughs> so there's weirdly. some sort of transitive property there. Or... And why is there no mouse-flavoured cat food? That's mm. what I want to know. <laughs> no one's growing mice, and like farming there's mice. There's plenty of them around. There is, but, you know, it's probably not cost-effective to go out and catch them all. Anyway, um, weirdly, some scientists have found that some species of monkey can't taste artificial sweeteners. So there you go. You now know that. <laughs> That's interesting. It is. They do taste the natural sugars, but they can't taste the artificial sweeteners. Hmm. Yep. Um, so we have around, you know, that 5,000 taste buds. Herbivores, like cows, have around 25,000 taste buds. Can you guess why? To make the grass taste sweeter. Ooh, maybe. <laughs> um, well, vets say it's because herbivores have, well, herbivores in general have a lot more taste buds because they need to be able to tell if a specific plant contains oh, yeah. a dangerous toxin. Right. Um, on the other hand, if you are a carnivore, um, you don't need all those taste buds. So carnivores typically have less taste buds. I imagine um, carnivores rely more on smell for hunting, whereas for a cow, you, I mean, grass doesn't smell much. You have to actually taste it to see what it's like. Yeah. Indeed. Um, yeah, often you can't taste the toxin. I mean, smell the toxin, mm. but once you taste it and taste bitter, yeah. then you can um, spit it out. Yeah. Um, and what about birds? Is anyone asking about whether birds have taste buds or is it just me? I am. Okay. Well, I don't know. What do worms taste like anyway? <laughs> I'm very surprised to find out that chickens have taste buds, but they only have around 30. Oh. Huh. <laughs> But they've only got small brains too, so. Some birds are quite um, uh, are quite taste sensitive. So cockatiels have over 300 taste buds and they can discriminate between salt, sugar and acids. So when people say things taste like chicken, they that's not a compliment. <laughs> Saying they they've only say- got 30 taste buds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but th- one question here, what about carnivorous birds? Yeah, indeed, raptors. I mean, you know, yeah. chi- chickens eat all sorts of things too. So they, yeah, they're they, they're they omnivorous yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, um, that is a good question. Someone needs to study eagles. Um, lastly, but not least, even fish have taste buds. Um, just for salt, though. Both in the water. <laughs> well, they have them both in their mouths, but they also have them on their skin. So on their lateral lines, which makes me wonder: Are they always just tasting salty fish? Yeah, just tasting all the other oh, fish around all them. All the other fish around them. <laughs> oh, dear. So next time you're chowing down on a tasty treat, show some appreciation for your taste buds who improve every meal every day. Thanks, buds.
Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I've got one of my depressing stories. Don't which sound we all like. so upbeat about it. Oh, come on. We, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and we have to talk about it. Well, if it's related to science, we do. Okay. Well, that's yeah. true, actually. Yeah. Uh, is this related to science? Let me check. I think this will do. Anyway, now I'm talking about uh, plastic, in particularly plastic in the oceans. There's been a bit of research uh, in that area lately. So I thought I'd kind of round up some of the stuff and see if there's a common thread of, like, I don't know, plastic can, dental can you, floss or something. Can um, you guarantee that by the end we'll feel empowered to do something about this? Or is this really going to send me into a spiral of... Throwing out all the plastics Throwing. <laughs> yes. in your house. Um, let's, let's, let's see. We'll see. Let's Great. see. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Now, yeah, obviously plastic is a big problem and it is it is everywhere. Uh, it has been considered one of the markers of the Anthropocene. We like talking about the Anthropocene, the new age we're entering influenced by humans. Um, but yeah, plastic is considered one of the markers of the Anthropocene being that it is kind of a feature of the geologic record that they'll future geologists and archaeologists will find plastic when they wouldn't have found plastic before. That's something interesting to think about, it isn't is, it? It is, yeah. Mm. Um, of course, the Anthropocene also involves climate change, and plastics do contribute to climate change. There was a recent paper in the journal Nature Climate Change that said that 3.8% of global greenhouse emissions uh, come from plastic manufacture. That's almost half the... So almost double the emissions from air travel. Um, and the rate of plastic production is growing. Um, so the like we plastic has only been really being produced in mass form for the last sixty years or so. Um, it does make me ask or ponder the question of if there's that much uh, emissions related to the manufacture of plastic items and mm-hmm. products. What? How much emissions would the alternatives to those products produce? Because plastic is actually pretty cheap and energy. Uh, efficient to manufacture. So if we have to replace all these plastic things with other things, is that going to make a difference? Well, that's an interesting interesting point. Um, I guess when you consider that it is, like I said, it is something that has increased a lot in the last few decades. Like, um, I think half the plastic produced in the world has been produced in the last 13 years. So it's kind of wow. at an increasing rate. So it's exponentially almost yeah, increasing. Basically. Yeah, basically. So there is a question of what the alternatives would be, but I suppose the question is, is you know what has driven the increase in plastic? It is that easy to manufacture, that convenience, mm. and uh, yeah. So that's something that has to be considered when we're looking for alternatives. Yeah, but we'll get to that at the end, Stu. You're jumping ahead here. Sorry, sorry. Let's look at the depressing stuff first. Okay, okay. Let's look into that to the depression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Now there is a visible <laughs> effect on sea life in particular. Um, in March this year, there was a whale that washed up on the beach in the Philippines. It had basically starved to death due to 40 kilograms of plastic bags in its stomach. Um, so we know that plastic is ending up being eaten by sea life, um, but we don't know where all the plastic in the oceans goes. I mean, you've probably heard of those big garbage patches that they they talk about, like mm. the, the Great Pacific Gaia and that sort of thing. Um, there's only like a small fraction, a tiny fraction of the, um, the plastic that goes into the ocean. So we don't really know where everything um, ends up. Um, there was a recent study looking at the Indian Ocean in particular. Now, this was um, published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, colon oceans um, and it involves scientists from the University of Western Australia among others and they tried to track where all the plastic going into the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean ends up and there's a lot of plastic that should be going into the Indian Ocean because um, when you look at the plastic pollution that comes into the oceans of the world um, 
a large proportion of it, probably most of it, will come from eight rivers in Asia. Mm. Um, together with a couple of African rivers, they make up 90% of all the pollution going to the ocean comes from these rivers. Wow. Yeah. That is an incredible huge statistic. huge proportion, yeah. Uh, now, there is a current called the, Indian, the Indonesian through-flow, which kind of brings water from east to west through, the, through Indonesia, from the Pacific to the um, Indian Ocean. And um, once, once it gets there, then you have currents that flow down the West Australian coast and also the East African coast, kind of bring it towards the pole. So a lot of the plastic then makes it around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa and ends up in the South Atlantic Ocean. There's a kind of a big subtropical gyre there where it all just kind of collects. So that's where some of it goes, but other parts of it, you know, goes elsewhere. We don't know exactly where. Like I said, some of it wash up on beaches. I don't know if you saw recently there was um, a another um, another study led by um, Jennifer Lavers from the University of Tasmania, published in Scientific Reports, that found um, plastic on beaches in the Cocos Keeling Islands. Did you see this, Claire? I did. Um, tons and tons and tons of plastic. Two hundred thirty-eight tons. Yes. Sorry, on, yes. On the beaches. Yeah, 414 yeah. million pieces, I said. Um, and there's not many people um, on the Cocos Islands no, in so the this Indian is, Ocean? This would be coming from, yeah, from these ocean currents, from monsoon currents and things like the wash um, debris up on the beaches. Now, a quarter of the identifiable items I found were like single-use plastic. So things like straws, um, bags, bottles. There was an estimated 373,000 toothbrushes. Whoa. Which is a lot of toothbrushes. Mm. Um, and But this is still just an estimate because this is like all over the island. They dug down about 10 centimetres, but there would be more further down because this is kind of plastic Been gets washed up. Yeah, yeah, and like sand gets deposited on top of it. Um yeah, so there's a lot of plastic on those those kind of uninhabited islands. Also, I don't know if you saw recently, but there was plastic waste discovered at the very deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench. They discovered some new species of animals as well, but uh, yeah. There Did was any of them eat plastic by any chance? Um, <laughs> some of them looked like plastic. There's one of them like it was kind of a sea squirt that looks like a plastic bag. but um, They found microplastics in those in those animals at the bottom mm, of the Mariana mm, Trench though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's basically everywhere. <clears throat> so, yeah, the big question is, yeah, how do we turn this around? And you're right, Stu, we need to find replacements for it um, is, is one thing. Um, there are you could there are actual bioplastics. They so can make them out of different materials and have compostable bioplastics is one option. Uh, another option is just to get rid of the single-use items that have become so convenient. Um, now, when you consider that we have only been doing using these plastics for like the last 60 years or so, it's not like... It's not an essential part of human life to be. No, we've plastic. been getting by without them for a really for long a time. For a very long time, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the question then is can we turn it around? One of the, I think, you know, one, one of the advantages of the single use plastics too, though, is from a public health perspective, in that if you do have plastic straws and, and single use cups and things like that, people don't get sick if they're, you know, you buy a drink, you finish the drink, you throw it away and nobody else uses it so you can't pass on your illnesses. And I, I can understand why some people are saying, well, you know, we kind of need some of these things. But obviously most of the reason people use them is not for a public health reason. Mm. It's actually just because, well, it's easy to buy them and, you you know, that's what the drink comes in or that's what your, you know, that's what your sandwich comes wrapped in. So we could probably find alternatives for that pretty easily. Oh, yeah, but you're actually, it's an interesting point, though, because when you looked at the plastic bag, 
bands here. Mm. One of the big complaints was, what about the health? You know, if I'm using reusing a bag. To put fresh bit, food in and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, what about all the bacteria in my bag? It's yeah, well, it is, you know, it's something to think about, but whether it's an actual problem or whether that's just a potential problem, you know, yeah. no one's probably done the research on that yet. No, but it is like, it is a worldwide problem and it will require worldwide solutions. Um, there was um, there was a big legally binding extension to the Basel Convention that was signed in March to control the shipping of plastic waste to developing countries. Uh, notably, the United States is not a member of the Basel Convention, but supposedly this would still affect their exports of plastic waste were they to do that. But um, yeah, clearly it's not just a problem for the um, for the the develop the developed world. It's also a problem throughout the world, and it really is trying to find ways of solutions that will be applied to everyone um, in there change their practices across the world. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.